I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done and that. being hired by a company called Carroll Co. Pictures. And that. Was the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's talking. Okay. Of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. In this episode, Roger explains a very old axiom about Hollywood. The movie industry is probably the only one I've ever heard of in which if you're really smart and really successful, your goal is to get fired. Streaming is bad. The classic Chariots of Fire gives us a studio head, and a young Jason Blum calls Roger his uncle. Oh, and Roger flirts disastrously with Diane Keaton. But first, Barbara Streisand wants to remake a movie that Roger thinks is a bad idea, and Madonna will prove it. Steve Ross's other great pal was Barbara Streisand. This also didn't bring Warner anything that truly mattered, except we did get the uh, remake of A Star is Born. And that soundtrack was huge. Evergreen, all of that, that made a lot of money, didn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, no, no. Uh, Look, with these prestige projects, it's not a question of do they make money, it's how much do they make. And if they don't make enough, it doesn't sometimes justify, uh, they may be relatively low risk because of the star power involved. But Barbara became really buddy-buddy with Steve, and it was a, a marriage made in heaven is he gave her things and she took things. Uh, <laughs> and in any case, at one point, about six or seven of us are in the little small office off of Steve's main office in a meeting when Steve is called out and his secretary buzzes and says, Barbara's on the phone. Well, we knew who that was. B-A-R-B-R-A. Right. He comes back 10 minutes later, all excited. He said, guess what? Barbara is just so excited. She's bought the remake rights to Lena Vertmuller's Swept Away, which had been a a big hit for a foreign language movie, and she's going to make the American version. I say, well, I hope she didn't pay a lot of money for them. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, to my recollection, it's based on a 1902 J.M. Barry play called The Admirable Crichton. It's been made in a silent film. It was made in 1934 by Paramount as We're Not Dressing with Bing Crosby, George Burns, and Gracie Allen, of all people. I said, it's been made, and if it isn't in the public domain, I'm, I, I'd be stunned. This is why they don't let movie buffs into the business. Steve looked at me and said, excuse me, where were we before this ridiculous interruption? <laughs> I, I was about two inches tall. And Steve never directly put you down. What you felt really bad was when he said, if you'd done something that hadn't worked out, he said, it's my fault. I should have done it myself. That's the worst his direct attacks ever got. And But so, Streisand never made that movie. Madonna did. No, it never, it never, it, Madonna made it and it was, it was terrible. With Guy Ritchie, he directed and she, and it was a huge bomb. Yeah, huge bomb, yeah. 
Well, yeah, I don't know exactly why. But not for you guys. That wasn't a Warner project. No, 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 no. So you dodged that. Well, going back to this quote about the people who get damaged because they asserted their rights to be rewarded and, and, and showed ingratitude, what happens to the people who play the game? And the answer is the movie industry is probably the only one I've ever heard of in which if you're really smart and really successful, your goal is to get fired. And there have been more senior studio executives, and I can give you a a quick list of some of the ones that have been um, former studio executives, chief executives usually, Amy Pascal, Joe Roth, Peter Chernin, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, Nina Jacobson, David Hoberman, Mark Platt, they all were fired for contracts worked out at some day, like Peter Chernin was the number two to Rupert Murdoch at News Corp. And he got the, what you get is your golden parachute in the form, not just of mere money, but you get to be a quote, independent producer. And Peter Chernin's deal, if I recall, guaranteed him two releases a year on the 20th Century Fox schedule. Well, that's worth its weight in gold. And then what did he make? He made remakes of and, and extensions of franchises. These were pictures that by and large had no chance of failing. I mean, the perfect example was uh, Nina Jacobson had been running one of Disney's two production divisions, the non-animated, the feature film part. And according to something I read in 2006, immediately after the birth of her third child, while she was still in the delivery room, she was fired over the telephone by Richard Cook, who was then the studio chief for, for Disney, and told it was part of a studio restructuring, and she was succeeded by a marketing executive. Well, I don't know if the guy was good, bad, or indifferent, but I know that marketing executives almost never become are the right people to be heads of production. Uh, but since her firing, poor thing, she has produced... Shepherded is a more accurate word than produced. Three Hunger Game movies at an average cost of $165 million. I have no idea what her deal is, but I doubt if there's a single currently employed studio executive who wouldn't swap with her in a New York minute. You're given a guaranteed path to making money. Amy Pascal ran Columbia Pictures, Sony, it became Sony Pictures Entertainment, for something like 15 years. And in research for a piece that I was writing for Film Comment, I looked up and figured out a way to determine what were the real profits of the picture division. And it was a complicated exercise. I won't bore anyone with how I did it, but trust me. I figured out that in her 15 years, on a cash basis, there was barely a break even. Barely a break even, no profits. Years in which for each year she was paid six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know, million dollars a year. And remember, a movie studio begins the year knowing where 50% of their profits are coming from. It's the library, which they're simply re-releasing in whatever is the VHS, DVD, the new streaming now. And so they're built in. There's no risk. And so the, the idea that you had someone who was paid a great deal of money to not succeed. 
I mean, it was uh, it was a not a, to release new content, a new product to that new was content, supposed to content, eventually and, yes, fill that pipeline. Right, yeah. that someday would be well, the other fifty percent. Well, remember that this performance was despite won their library and despite a little thing called Spider Man, which they originally had before Marvel was bought by Universal. But it, she then was given a independent producing deal, and in that time, what has she produced for them? A reboot of Ghostbusters, another Spider-Man movie. I mean, what piece of the of the action she gets, I don't know. But it's a generous one, I promise you, way more than any salary ever was. And she's doing it on something in which somebody's paying $150 million each picture to make something with zero risk, which she gets a piece of the action. I once described being a, a studio executive as being sent to Las Vegas with someone else's money and allowed to keep a big chunk of what you make at the table. Who would, who would say no to that? But what's interesting about everything you've said is that these producers become studio heads and then they become producers again. Why would they take the studio job? Oh, well, because some of them came up through the ranks as uh, studio executives. They started a low level and worked their way up. The people who had been successful independent producers generally understood not to be seduced into taking the studio job. Who was the Columbia guy, Dave, the, David the, the Chariots of Fire, that was oh, going to be oh, Putnam, very, right? Great but, story. Do great I have story. that right? Putnam? David Putnam. Yeah. A wonderful human being, a first class gentleman. Of course, he was fired. <laughs> I had known him because he was one of three partners in. Goldcrest, a British production company which had distinguished itself by Chariots of Fire, among other things. He was partners with Alan Ladd Jr. and a guy named Sandy Lieberson. And in fact, I at one point was under consideration to be head of a U.S. division of Goldcrest when I'd left Warner and didn't work out for whatever reason. But but this guy was a real filmmaker. And the he was thinking a real was filmmaker. there's going to be a real filmmaker running a studio finally. Right, exactly. And he'll make great high quality films. Right. And the moment his appointment was announced, there had to have been a secret meeting somewhere of all the studio honchos to say, we're going to kill the guy. This is the last thing we need. There's a real filmmaker in our ranks. And he had a sign over his office that I never forgot. It said, quote, there is no limit to what a man can achieve if he doesn't care who gets the credit. I've heard it attributed to various people, including Abraham Lincoln, but whatever. It was his way of going about things. It is so contrary to the studio view in which if once a picture is released and it's a hit, I have 11 different people say, how did you like my picture? Well, I didn't know it was yours. Oh, I was the one who got them to hire so-and-so as the director. I was the one who did the, the script. But if it's a failure, only one guy did it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, maybe not even one. <laughs> so if other people think I am using the value of hindsight when I talk about the fact that it's very simple about the movie business, it's over. The studio business in which heads you made a fortune, tails you broke even, is no longer the business. It is now a business with vastly reduced 
profit margins and the ability to continue to make $150, $200 million pictures that are anything other than franchise extensions. So you'll get the Spider-Mans and the Fast and Furious, uh, which Universal has to be given great credit for taking a crappy original movie and getting nine different sequels out of it, each one grossing more than, than before. But now the theater business is not going to survive COVID. I go to still go into movie theaters, but I can't get anybody to go with me. I said, Let but me. even without COVID, if the hardest working employee in a studio is now a Xerox machine and it's just remaking and, and franchising everything, Aren't you a little sad by that? Oh, I'm totally sad, except for one thing. Streaming is very, very bad for the so-called tent poles, the franchise pictures, because to whatever degree part of their audience will migrate to streaming and watching it at home. And if you have a reasonably well-equipped home theater setup, um, I mean, I last night just saw The Lost Daughter on Netflix, it's an interesting, strange movie, but it, it's the kind of movie that is made for streaming because the streaming business model is very, totally different from what the studios are used to. They used to put up 50, 100, 150 million to make the picture, a comparable amount to market the thing, and then they would wait and see how much money they'd made. The answer, four out of five times they lost at least some, if not all, of their investment. And one time out of five, they made five times it, and it all worked out somehow. They were happy with that. Happy with that. But they were in the gambling business, and they knew it, and they were rewarded like they hit the lottery when they had one of these big pictures. Now they are in a business that is a fixed-price business. They sell to Netflix, Amazon, etc. Let's say they've come up with a movie that's going to cost $12 million to make. Amazon says, we'll pay you $15 million. You get to keep $3 million no matter what happens. And there's a bonus calculation based on viewership and so forth. But nobody gets ludicrously rich from one of these pictures taking off. But what you get is the ability to make the kind of pictures that studios would now say, oh, I, I can't make that. There's not a big enough market for it. And so they're, they've narrowed and narrowed themselves into the corner. And as I say, I don't want people to think that I'm using the brilliance of hindsight to make these predictions. I am going to quote myself, if I may be forgiven, from an article. If I, you don't, who will? Right, exactly. The answer is nobody. <laughs> that in 2015, I wrote a sort of sayonara piece for film comment on what I saw as the death of the studio system. And I said that the massive scale, this is a direct quote, the massive scale of waste at the studios, the various negative trends afoot in the business, and the seeming paralysis at the top of both the studios and their corporate parents in counteracting those trends will, I believe, come together in the relatively near future to work serious, visible hardship on these companies. When this happens, I am certain that the first victims will not be the tent poles, but the little pictures. Moreover, I suspect that this current generation of studio executives will find themselves viewed a decade or so from now, which is, this was 2015, the way the aging moguls of the 50s and 60s were seen by the 70s generations of filmmakers and executives, dinosaurs who couldn't imagine that their way of life was about to be swept away. 
if you hear the sound of me patting myself on the back, that's exactly correct. That's what Well, I the thing you couldn't have predicted is how COVID would have hurried that process up and pushed us all into our living rooms yes. instead of a theater. Uh, but, but yes, it, but you it, were perceptive. It, 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 mean, it, it means it took two or three or four years less to happen. Right. Because I'd also said what the, the, in the same article, the studios have eaten their seed corn during what will be seen as a period of relative prosperity in the near future, when nearly everyone will be able to select from a vast choice of on-demand movies, and each viewing will produce a fraction of what a ticket sale or a DVD purchase once gave the studio. So further back padding by me. Uh, but, 2015, uh, Roger Smith was pretty smart. Um, we should quote him more. Well, <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> well, my wife would say, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Uh -huh. I have frequently have said to some people I know, if you're so rich, why aren't you smart? <laughs> Which is better. Yeah. You don't have to answer. Don't answer. Well, don't, let's okay. talk about your little movie, The Lost Daughter, for a second. Is that something that, this is Maggie Gyllenhaal's yes. directorial debut. She also wrote the script, adapted it from a book. Is that the kind of thing that wouldn't have gotten made? outside of the Netflix world? Not a chance in hell. She obviously wanted to create a mood and, a, and a, it's, it's opaque to the point of, of being, huh, what, what, wait, there's a, there's a character who plays the lead character 20 years earlier and you're never sure which is which. It is gloomy, strange, and admirable in a purely artistic sense. But what makes the movie business to me fascinating and what made me so excited to be part of it for 30 years is that this is a constant tension between art and commerce. If you want to make purely artful movies, the film schools of America are turning out 27 people a year who can do that uh, per school, not, not, not per country. <laughs> if you want to make pictures that gross a lot of money, if you're Michael Bay or, or Jerry Bruckheimer, Bruckheimer yeah. you can do that. It's making something that's both a respectable work of art and a successful piece of commerce. That's the genius trick, and not many people manage to do that. And I could go back and cite you know, all kinds of cases. Uh, no, no, but you yourself used to sneak into art house movies when you were a kid, so there's always a market for smaller movies someplace. But they won't be in a theater because I would sneak into, a, I'll tell you a story about one of my absolute favorite contemporary directors is Paul Thomas Anderson. And if I want to get a sense of somebody's taste in movies, I say, do you prefer Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson? If they say Wes, I end the conversation. If they say Paul Thomas, I continue. Anyway, he had made a movie 10 years or so ago called Magnolia. And Magnolia was dense, brilliant, complicated, set in the San Fernando Valley. There's a Magnolia Boulevard that runs through it. And I saw it in the theater shortly after it was released. But some 10, 15 years later, I am attending the 75th birthday party for Bob Downey Sr. And I'm sitting with Bob Downey Jr. and Paul Thomas Anderson. And I said, Mr. Anderson, I want you to know, you know that how much I loved Magnolia. One of the things with creative people 
do not praise their hits. Don't tell them how much you loved There Will Be Blood. Tell them how much you liked Magnolia. Right. And, uh, and praise I, the orphan. Right. And I was being sincere. I said, but I want you to know that I decided to go late at uh, Tuesday night. I went to a theater in the valley. It's probably 600 seat screen. I was one of four people in the place seeing there. And it was added to the, the movies weird enough to begin with. But the sense of being there virtually alone really added to the weirdness. Bob Jr. says, that's how everyone saw it, which was <laughs> not very nice, but, but probably quite accurate. And there is a sort Roger, of- Roger, it rained frogs in that movie. Yes, yes, <laughs> right, it did. Well, it rained frogs in the Bible too, yeah. <laughs> so let me, let me go back to one thing that I wanted to say is, is anyone these days getting it right? The answer is very simple, yes. Jason Blum. Jason Blum, whom I have happened to know since he was six years old, he is the son of the famous art dealer who bought the Warhols, Irving Blum. And Jason started after a, a long stint at Miramax, went out to California strictly on his own with, uh, he said, a, a Ford Escort and a pile of scripts to build a film company. And Blumhouse has since become the most successful independent film company since, I would say since Sam Goldwyn, but it's more successful on a monetary basis than he ever was. It got its start with a little thing called Paranormal Activity, which he famously bought the rights to for $15,000. And he owned it outright when he went to Paramount and made a production deal that got him nothing like the lucrative deals he can make now, but then for a little independent producer, he did so well that there, there have been seven paranormal activities, the last one last year. I think the string is running out on this thing, but it, it launched Blumhouse, and Blumhouse is the source of the absolutely brilliant Get Out, the source of its, uh, it's the Jordan Peele's next movie, Us, and he makes very, very high-class horror films. And the horror label keeps a lot of people I know from going to see them, but they're making a mistake. These are socially... Well, you know, a lot of people forget that Miramax was two brothers. It yes. was Harvey, but it was also Bob. Right. And Bob was Dimension, and that was the... The Nightmare on Elm Street, all that The B picture. But that made the money. money. Yes. And it feels like Blumhouse has kind of married the two guys and made intelligent horror films. Intelligent horror films on one end, but it also has done all kinds of very impressive things with the, the freedom that because it owns its own properties and it does its own financing and simply uses studios, Paramount, Universal mostly, as a distribution arm. It pays them a fee, distribution fee that probably is as little as 10, 12% of the gross and keeps the rest and the company had been around for 10 years before they'd made a film that cost more than $10 million. Jason, who I've discussed this with, uh, he doesn't understand the studio business model. It's nuts. Sounds like he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. And now... And that's the future, you think? Because he... And he told me recently, look, I look at a script and I say, streamer, studio, streamer, studio. There's a total divide. If it isn't something that's going to make people get up and go out of their homes and go into a theater 
and there are very few of those, and particularly not many of original things. If you're, you have to really probably base it on established intellectual property, a, a game, a book, something like that. And, a TV show. He did Fantasy Island. He's done. They, well, he also did Black Klansman. I mean, he's he's used the freedom that he has financially now to work up in quality without getting arty. He understands that that's not a business, and he may indulge himself occasionally in something he just happens to believe in. And the Blumhouses are the next generation yes of he will attract mini moguls right he will well he except he ain't so many <laughs> uh, he will attract imitators for sure uh, but you have he he had this incredible good fortune I won't say luck because he, he made the decision on paranormal activity to get launched in a way that gave him seed capital to be independent because when we say independent producers most people don't realize, they're not independent and they rarely produce. <laughs> the independent producers of the ancient era, the Samuel Goldwins, the Sam Spiegels, the so forth, the Joseph E. Levine, making studio movies purely from their own financing, which was bank borrowings and foreign sales, those don't exist anymore. But Jason now has his own capital base. And he's a wonderful, charming, intelligent, genuine human being on top of it. It's, uh, uh, I, I, I can take no pride in his career, career except that 20 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, I predicted his, he would be successful when his mother told me she was worried about Jason being seduced by Hollywood. And I said, Hollywood is not going to change Jason. Jason's going to change Hollywood. And I I have that in writing, by the way. <laughs> so and Jason, and Jason Blum knows who the fuck Roger Smith is. Absolutely does. Doesn't necessarily mean he returns my calls right away. He returns them in two or three days, which I'm very happy. I mean, uh, now I, I said, Jason, I knew you when you were six years old and called me Uncle Roger. And now people say to me, you know Jason Blum? I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> that is a wave of the future that I think can be successful. Um, Whereas we said that movie buffs are scorned in Hollywood, there was, when I went out there in the 80s, still the remnants of the old line, the generation that came of age in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, and I got to know some of them. They were much older than I, but there were still two widows of famous producers of that era, Gene Howard and uh, Connie Wald, who'd been uh, uh, Jerry Wald's uh, widow. They, they were great hostesses, and you go to these parties and meet all the waxworks from, those, from that era. And um, The way Danny Jansen had an Oscar party every year at her yes, house? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I was uh, at one dinner party in Hollywood, and this was... The rare times when you say Hollywood it was actually Hollywood. It wasn't Beverly Hills or Brentwood. And it was present as a guest was George Axelrod. And George Axelrod, if you look up his credits, made a number of very successful, credible movies, not mega hits of the 50s, 60s, etc. And George is listening to a group of people, mostly of my generation, which was one generation younger than him, 
bitching and moaning about the quality of movies in Hollywood circa 1988, something like that. And he said, finally, he looked up and said, guys, it's real simple. People used to come out to Hollywood from Broadway. They'd written for the stage. They'd produced or directed for the stage. They'd acted on the stage. They came out here and they worked down for the movies and they were fabulous. That's what got you Philadelphia story. Now they come from something called television and they try to work up and what you see is what you get. That's the difference. And I thought that I would heard an insight. At George the... Axelrod could never have predicted streaming or the quality of what would be on what he would think of as a television set. No, he could not have anticipated So in that. a way, his theory about TV growing up into the movies has come full circle and the movies have grown down, down. to TV. TV, with those, remember, TV that he was talking about as late as the late 1980s was three networks. Right. And three networks had to appeal. If, if you weren't putting on something that you thought had a decent chance of appealing to one out of three American households, you'd get canceled in six weeks. So that was why it was a mass entertainment medium. The movies had become, starting in the 70s, much more focused on the core moviegoer, the intellectual, the student, the young person who wanted new edgy product and things that, that were totally different from the bloated sillinesses of the 50s and 60s. So the industry had definitely changed. Um, well, interesting thing, and this is highly indiscreet and we may have to edit it out, but I'll do it anyway. I love it already. The host of the dinner party was one of, when I said before, I, I was friends with the failures. He was a guy who'd made six or seven, directed six or seven films, the best of which are called cult classics, the worst of which are totally forgotten. But he uh, was admired within this circle of people who believed in the old Hollywood and where, where quality and, and, and intelligence mattered. And uh, he lived in an uh, unfashionable part of Hollywood where this dinner party took place. And at one point, his home was burglarized. But he was, it was a robbery because he was at home when it happened. And the burglar, he was gay. He ended up taking his burglar to bed. And he ended up becoming so attached to him after he went to prison that he left the bulk of his million-dollar estate to the burglar's children. Now, that's not a Hollywood story, but God, is it a story. <laughs> no names. No, no names. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be option. We're not taking that out. That's yeah. a great story. And that should be, that sounds like something Paul Thomas Anderson would do. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll pitch it to him. Okay. And then we'll get Blum to put up the dough. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, La-dee-da. Guess who right. knew Diane Keaton? Well, in my Hollywood experience... I rarely got to know stars. That was not my, I got to know executives, I got to know producers, the writers for sure, but very few stars. However, just after I went to work for Warner in the mid 70s, I was giving a brunch, a Sunday brunch at my house and a friend of mine, a lovely woman named Sue Ginsburg, called and said, can I bring a guest? I said, of course, there's plenty of room. And she brings Diane Keaton. Well. Obviously, Diane Keaton 
Everybody knows her because she is what you see on the screen. She is the... And what we had seen on the screen, if I can jump in here, was Annie Hall. That was Annie Hall right after Annie Hall, Annie your Hall brunch? Annie Hall came out in 76. It was probably right around then, okay. if not right then. But also they had, they had seen her in, in Manhattan. They'd seen her in, in various Woody Allen and other, other films, too. At, let's not forget The Godfather. Right. In which... If you look at the part she played for Woody Allen of the Faye, slightly ditzy, wonderful, but charming person, or the substantive part that she played in Godfather as Michael Corleone's wife, she had embodied both those things. So I didn't become friends with her, but I didn't count on the fact that one of my guests, who was, um, he was one, a, a, a brilliant published but not terribly successful novelist and hit it off with Diane and I later learned they left the brunch together. When they parted I have no idea but they parted certainly good friends. Frederick Tutton was his name is still a friend to this day and I got to know Diane just slightly enough but when I moved to LA we ran into each other and I kept in touch with her then and we discovered we had a mutual interest in photography. She was a great photography buff and not a bad photographer herself. We went to, there were certain galleries that specialized in LA in photography and then this became our sort of initial basis of, of a friendship and I had a house in Santa Barbara and I wanted to invite her up for the weekend. Whatever I might have had in mind, I knew what, very well that she didn't have that in mind. She saw me as a nice, nice guy and somebody... You're both unattached? Or We're both she's un seen she's, she's anybody as far as you know? As far as, as I know, okay. not anybody, certainly right. not exclusively. And I'm quite unattached, but if I, even if I were, no one would stand a chance against Diane Keaton. <laughs> and so... And as you've pointed out, if you had more power uh, to put her in movies and stuff, you might have done better. But she knew better. Not with her. Okay. Not with her okay, because, fair enough. because she did not think about her career. She had the greatest respect for talent. And she would, I think, subscribe to my distinction between talent and ability. And in fact, we began a dinner friendship. We had a deal. It was really the terms were actually worked out. I could take her to dinner provided two things. One, I found a really interesting offbeat restaurant with good food. And I mean, one time I said, look, there's a really good Japanese restaurant in Beverly Hills. No, no Beverly Hills. I said, look, it's not well known. We'll, we took a chance. We went there. It worked. It, no one saw it. But finally, we're at some restaurant. I forget what, but I remember it was, it was Japanese. And I can tell that the, the middle-aged couple at the next table, I can tell the woman keeps looking over and looking over. And not finally, at you. Not at me. No. And finally, she says, excuse me, but I couldn't help noticing you. And I just have to tell you that I am such a big fan of yours, Miss Sarandon. <laughs> Diane looks, smiles beatifically and says, I'm so flattered that you think I'm Susan Sarandon, but I'm afraid I'm not. Oh. End of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was in the part of good friend. I may have aspired to more, but I was not unrealistic. In fact, my favorite all-time Hollywood joke involves Samuel Goldwyn and Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had announced that he was running for governor of California for the first time. This was the mid-60s. 
And Sam Goldwyn seemingly had been in, in Europe and been away for a month or something, comes back and is greeted by a few reporters at the airport. And one of them says, uh, Mr. Goldwyn, what do you think of the idea of Ronald Reagan for governor of California? He said, no, no, Jimmy Stewart for governor, Ronald Reagan for best friend. So that's uh, the idea that that was, that was going to be my role, and I was perfectly content with it, I promise you. However, I finally, after six or seven of these dinners, we actually were at a lunch. In the, in Who the, paid? Oh, well, of course I paid. Okay. The, right. You uh, didn't go back and forth? She no, paid no, one no, time no, paid no. Okay. I, mean, I think she may have tried once, and I said, forget okay. it. I'm, I'm old-fashioned enough. And we were having lunch at a lovely restaurant in Beverly Glen, which she might have been made at that restaurant, but it wasn't. And I decided, screw it, let's try and get this off the dime, and I reach over and grab her hand. The only part of her body not covered in clothing, everything else, head, face, tore, everything was just about And no gloves, because she's no, notorious she, no, she had now for gloves. I think she had fingerless gloves or something like that. <laughs> but I just, I squeeze it, she pulls her hand away like, a, like from a hot stove, and we never had another meal again. Roger, that's the saddest story I've ever <laughs> yeah. heard. Well, I and called, never spoke, never like caught on. Uh, okay, there's right. always there's always a codicil to my stories. All right. I actually called my friend Frederick, who had had maintained a relationship with her of, of what exact sort? I'm not sure, but I think romantic. And I said, Frederick, was I? I just, blew it, or I was I just ludicrous in thinking she'd be interested in me? Was that just uh, you know I was just out of my league? He said, Roger. No, no. She thinks you're wonderful, except one thing. The only people she would ever think of romantically have talent. They have to be a director, a star, an actor. She admires talent, and she only, I think, thinks that people who have talent would understand her. So she may like you, she may find you enjoyable, but don't get your hopes up. And I thought that was perfectly reasonable. Segway now to 2007. I'm living in New York. I've been happily married for 10 years. When I see that the Film Society of Lincoln Center is making her their annual honoree and doing a tribute to Diane Keaton. And I decide to do the only thing I can do, which is call up and buy two tickets and sit up in the balcony. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to try and catch a free pair. And I I go to it, and she's she was luminous. It was wonderful. I remember Steve Martin, of course. Who Steve Martin? I had taken Diane to his house for dinner in Santa Barbara when, at one point, I was invited by him, and they had just, I think, just made the first uh, Father of the Bride. So I decided to use Steve Martin as the lure to get her to come up and visit me in Santa Barbara, where she this. Tasteful. Was Steve with Victoria Tennant then, or this yes. is after yes. that? Yeah. Was, yeah. And his house is filled with incredible art, I'm told. Incredible art, but the house looked like a World War II bunker. It was the strangest gray, sunk into the ground, it's, it, 70s brutal architecture. Uh -huh. But anyway, so I said, look, Steve is having some people for dinner. Would you like to? Oh, I'd love to come. He said, you know, uh, she said, I'll, don't worry, I'll get a car and driver and all that. And it was a wonderful evening. I remember it very well. Paul Brickman was there, wonderful screenwriter. Screenwriter, yeah. And, worked with Woody. Right, worked with Woody a lot. In fact, he, he and his wife started a parlor game in which each person was asked to 
quote from memory their favorite poem, story, song, whatever. And uh, I remember Paul Brickman's wife recited the first chapter of Beowulf in Middle English. I was so intimidated. <laughs> Jesus, how do you follow that? No, you don't. You don't even try. <laughs> and uh, But uh, I think I ended up doing a, uh, a eulogy to somebody as a... Uh, and uh, coming in dead last, probably. So did you see Diane at the at the event? For You were up in the balcony and you didn't get a chance to go say didn't hello? Didn't get a chance to go say hello. However, the next day, Frederick calls me and says, look, I'm spending the day with Diane and I want to think of some cultural thing to take her to that she won't already know that would be really special. I said, that's easy. It's only been five or six years since they opened the Neue Gallery at 86th and 5th, which is this fantastic museum devoted to Austrian and German art of the 19th and 20th century. It's beautiful old building. It's a handsome thing. There's a cafe there. Take her to that. You'll be a star. And he says, great, great idea. And around noon the next day, the Monday they were supposed to go to the museum, I get a call from him saying, look, we're outside the museum. It's closed on Mondays. I said, oh, Christ, I never thought of that. I said, wait one minute. It happened that the museum was the brainchild of Ron Lauder, of the Estee Lauder family. Sure. And he was the great collector who built the collection and everything. His right hand, a lovely, lovely woman no longer with us, lived on the second floor of our building, and I call and I reach Liz Posen. And I said, Liz, I got a huge, enormous favor to ask. Is there any chance you can get them to open the museum? It's Diane Keaton, da-da-da-da. And 20 minutes later, someone met them there and gave her a two-hour private tour of the museum. So wow. if she remembers me fondly, I hope she does, but at least I was able to do that for her. So. The old thing about it's not what you know, it's who you know, is not the entire story, but it's not exactly wrong. Diane Keaton knows who the fuck Roger Smith is, and now you do too. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli's our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Yeah.
Electric Acid. Electric Acid.